uh, depending on what you are fishing for and what you like to fish for. To ask your friends. Do you bring a net yes. to get them in the boat yep, easier? Yep. And uh, this fall, I'm going to try to catch uh, some coho out of that thing. So I'm going to have to do uh, some searching to try to find a net that's big enough to handle a, at least a 30-inch salmon. But obviously, I can't take a net that has a handle on it that's six feet long. Right. You know, so I'm going to have to see if I can't find something that's a little shorter throw so I can scoop that fish out of the water and not have a big pole, uh, a big handle on that on that net. I'll find one. Yeah. They got to be out yeah. there. Yeah. Well, once you catch your fish, how do you store it then in the kayak? Do you just do you is it on a stringer hanging off or would other fish eat it if you did that? Or like is it this may be a silly question you can tell I'm not a fisherman or do you put it in a bucket on your boat or how do you Well, in a fishing them? kayak, they have holes. They actually have holes. I could actually put ice in there. And, okay. uh, and then what I do is I just cut the gills, bleed it, and then throw it in the ice box. Okay. In the past, when I was fishing out of that other kayak, I didn't have a choice. I didn't want to throw them in the cockpit kayak because then they're just sitting in there getting warm getting and dry hot. and getting yeah, hot. Getting gross. And, and so those I had to run a stringer, you know, okay, off the so side. Okay, so you can run a stringer. Yeah, you don't sure. have to worry that something bigger is going to come along no, and pull it off no, your... Okay. No, unless you're fishing the ocean, that, that'll change. Okay. <laughs> I figured that might get be a some, silly question. Yeah, get some sand shark going, hey, there's something free. Or a sea lion. Yeah, yeah. A that's sea lion come and snag I it. I just had a couple crabbers on and they... Rise them up, KBOO, 90.7. You don't know it's your girl, Tasha T. Good morning. This is Disability Justice, an everyday pursuit in survival. Your host, John Griffiths. The following program uses strong clinical language. Listener discretion is advised. So in the studio with me today is uh, Kate Williams, Disability Equity Center, Director of Advocacy Supports. What does Director of Advocacy Supports do? Hi, um, I'm Kate and I use she, her pronouns. And the Director of Advocacy Supports, that title makes me laugh in the most like loving and affectionate way for our disability community and the tendency to like give things these like quite dramatic names. Essentially, my focus is working with other disabled folks to amplify our voices in the community, increase opportunities to access art and life and community with a kind of specific focus on holistic or whole health and wellness. So health, which includes sex and living our values and relaxing and accessing opportunities that feel good. So the director of advocacy supports me does a little bit of program creation and hiring of other disabled folks and looking for funding and connecting with the community, try to look for ways for more access. The title doesn't give a lot of information about what I do. And also it's just quite long and a little bit silly. (laughs) And that sort of feels true to what the Disability Equity Center or DEC is. 
Well, you said you hire people with disabilities. Uh, I mean, what do you hire them to do? Um, well, so just to give a little background, so the Disability Equity Center, DEC, is a grassroots nonprofit and was started at the tail end of 2019. So cool time to start a nonprofit, like right before COVID and right before sort of our whole way of structuring ourselves with each other changed. Um, and it was started by a group of disabled people living in the Willamette Valley who um, yeah, were just looking for an opportunity to be with each other in a way that was honest and not apologetic and also cultivated opportunities within the non-disabled community to do those things too. So we're primarily a nonprofit that's comprised of disabled folks. So most of the folks who sit on our board of directors are disabled. And right now, all of our paid employees are also disabled people. Folks are doing kind of all different things. So I'm in my role, which is looks a bit like in a traditional nonprofit, what an executive director or program director's role might look like. And then we have disabled folks who are creating opportunities for health and wellness spaces and education. We have an art community and a music community. And we're looking to, yeah, just kind of continue this intentional nonprofit space that exists outside of maybe the models that came with previous generations of like disability rights groups where like, the focus is disability, but the leadership is non-disabled people sort of telling us disabled folks are like, oh, this is for you. Oh, this is for you. And we really want to do it from this disability justice frame where our leadership and our direction is by us, by disabled folks. So yeah, people are doing a little sprinkling of everything right now from grant development to program implementation to a few hours of access audits with, with businesses in the area and with other nonprofits. It's really cool. I basically am hanging out with disabled folks like 99% of my time now and I love it. So you're telling me you're hanging out with people with disabilities who are activists within the community and you guys are socializing or you're actually doing activism or you're doing a combination of both? For me, I'm like, what is that line, right? Like as a as a woman with a developmental disability and a person who's kind of never found a lot of like authentic space in a social community or in a work environment in a way that didn't feel like a little bit of activism to like make it work or just like a whole lot of pretending. <laughs> it feels like like our socializing is sort of activism in its own right. So when we meet for a wellness event or we meet for like watching a movie in a pool, like while that is an act of like social engagement and community, it's also this act of like defiance, right? Because a bunch of disabled people are not supposed to be getting together in public and then getting together and like not acting like children. Like we don't have babysitters. We don't have non-disabled people telling us what to do. I know, shocking. Can you handle it? Um, so even well, that. I, I mean, you know, I'm, you've got me really kind of curious because I, I never was aware that there is actually potentially, you know, a place to sit down and like talk activism or, uh, you know, talk advocacy with somebody else. You know, I mean, most of the time, if you're in, if you're in advocacy, you're out there and you're participating in some kind of activism event uh, and you don't really have time to like 
interact with the other people around you. So you don't really get to know anybody. Uh, and this sounds like this might help like uh, us activists actually stop, talk to each other and kind of like get to know. I mean, it sounds yeah. like that and I'm not, I'm, I'm, I might be going off on the wrong direction. No, I'm totally into it. No, I mean, I think that is my hope for it. I think that's my goal for it. Previous to working for DAC, for the Disability Equity Center, I worked in disability spaces and and because it wasn't staffed by disabled folks, I don't think there is a lot of understanding of like, for me to sustain the hard parts of activism, the like talking about just like basic rights to experience pleasure and joy, and also like have food and a place to live. It's like, I, I think we really, I need that balance of like knowing that I have a community holding me with love and grace to do that hard work. And I think also acknowledging that the experience of disability can't just be a battle against non-disabled systems. Like, I think there has to be something that I felt I needed more to like sustain myself in doing it. I needed to feel connected to my community. And I also think for some of it, it, there's a part of activism for me that felt for a long time like coming up against this system that's run by non-disabled folks, pushing for a non-disabled way to be. Like, this is the way that you need to work. It needs to look like this. And this is the way you need to experience joy. It's limited to this. And this is the way that will sort of allow you to have relationships. And I couldn't really dream of something beyond that because I was just inside battling this like black and white way. And it was, I felt like I was losing all the time. And I felt like I was with a group of folks who were like me or like me and that they were completely different and strange and rad and wonderful and, and just wasn't working. Right. So we're like trying to like fit into this non-disabled system that we're never going to fit into and trying to like ask these non-disabled folks to like give us crumbs of things that aren't even the right things for us and there's something for me that feels really cool about like like just screw all that like I don't I don't want that system I don't want that non-disabled system I don't want that black and white way of being so let's call in other disabled folks and let's just sit with each other and think of a whole new way and hold that time, I think, to dream about what that way can be. So yeah, I think for me, that like community piece of being an activist feels so vital because I don't think I knew what I was really advocating for or really fighting for until I could sit with a bunch of other beautiful weirdos and like realize this way doesn't serve any of us, but there's this new way, this way that we can build together that's that's amazing and gives it all a shape that feels good. Does that, I don't know if any of that existed in like clear communication and how much just existed in my weirdo brain, but. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for giving us that information. I am wondering, so do you guys have any events coming up? Do you have any, I was also wondering, like, are you a team of one or do you have multiple people in your team? So I'll do the second question first. <laughs> so. It's a team of just a wonderful group of folks. The thought of doing this by myself would make me cry. <laughs> I'm like, always want to, I think all of us are always trying to like cultivate more people to do this with. So it's very much has the goal of being non-hierarchical. So a flat structure of organization working towards a really just even balance of power within the group. And we have five folks on our like formal paid to do this work team. And then we also have our board 
and are presently building our self-advocate advisory group. So that typical nonprofit structure has, you know, the staff that works for the nonprofit, and then they're also directed by a board of directors, which often in the disability world for disability nonprofits, those are not disabled folks. Those are, and pardon my not use of able-bodied because I just have to throw that out the window. So non-disabled. So typically a board of directors is non-disabled folks and they're sort of making these big decisions about the work of the employees and then also, you know, the impact that the community has. So while it's required to have nonprofit status that you have a board of directors and board of directors, you can't pay. As you know, you sit on lots of boards and do great work, John. But our dream is having our board of directors, because we have to have folks in this role and our staff, but then having this additional piece, which is our self-advocate advisory board who can be compensated and who can be comprised all of disabled folks with a real specific lens on black and brown disabled people, queer disabled people, those multiply marginalized folks that marginalized folks that don't typically have a lot of say. And then what would happen, what will happen is then our self-advocate advisory board is our decision makers. Our board of directors are just kind of giving everything the once over stamp of approval in that official capacity that you have to as a nonprofit and then our staff is implementing that. Um, and I would say probably across our team now, we have total about 12 folks and we are definitely, I'm definitely, looking to like add more folks into our staff, looking to build our board, which would be non-compensated. And those are really just like, typically we have some disabled folks on our board and then also just like really strident, badass allies. And then looking to also invite folks to our self-advocate advisory board, which is compensated. And luckily I'm not doing any of this on my own because I have lots of parts of myself that are really thriving in this position. And I also have a lot of parts of myself that need support. Just like the way my disability presents, numbers turn into different numbers. <laughs> Time is imaginary. And um, it's really cool to sit in like the honesty of like how my brain is and say, I'm going to just full force run at these things. And then also we have these other humans who have different strengths and they're going to run full force at this other stuff. And we just meet together as a collaborative or a collective and, and do it. And it keeps changing. And, and then as far as events coming up, we have a couple things on the horizon. We are going to publish our first zine of art and writing and just amazing creations from disabled brains and the brains of rad allies and community members. And then we are supporting an artist, a disabled artist in the community to have their first art show. Um, and that's coming up in November, which is going to be wonderful at Turn, Turn, Turn. We have recurring art and music meetups, and those happen our art meetups are, this is my brain trying to like navigate things orderly. So there's an imaginary calendar in front of me. <laughs> so our art meetups are on the first and third Wednesday and it's a collective and um, we meet from two to four. It's completely free. We offer supplies to the Disability Equity Center and for leadership, however folks want to take that on. So just a space to be and create and share ideas and, and have an art space that 
sees disabled artists with the same dignity and respect as they would see a non-disabled artist. So you don't need to have a non-disabled mentor to participate and <laughs> you don't have to, you know, have the activity led by someone whose presentation of brain is more aligned with neurotypical than not. Um, and that space feels really good. And then we also have a music meetup on the first and third Mondays of the month. And those are at Turn, Turn, Turn. And it's an opportunity to make noise together as community, share ideas, collaborate, really just centered on music. So it isn't a class taught by a non-disabled person. None of the things that we offer are going to be that. And it is just sort of like a free space to create. And then, yeah, all of our events are free. So I, I think that for me, that's a huge part of equity is it doesn't cost money to participate because that can be a barrier. If you're doing all this for free, things always cost money. I mean, rental of space, things like that. I mean, you've got to have some way of bringing in some money. Do you have donors? Do you have a donation site? Do you... Yeah, I mean, yeah. how are you raising the money for all of this? We got a really, really incredibly generous grant from IHN. And it's lovely because part of what we're offering in return is we're training their system about disability justice and accessibility. So they funded, are essentially funding our first few years and then we are identifying other funders that are aligned with our values. And then, yeah, we will be pushing this winter, this late fall, early winter, we'll be looking at a little bit more community fundraising. Um, but we really just, it's felt, John, like so serendipitous and lovely that we found some folks in the community that really support what we're doing and have kind of generously offered us a way to do it. You used some alphabet soup, ISN. Did I get that? IHN. It's a health network system that houses the Samaritan Hospital system. So it's just a network of health providers. And that's, I believe it's the Intra Health Network. Okay. They're really committed to doing some internal work on how they're serving the disability community and kind of identified like, wow, this is something that we need to do better. So we've done some trainings with them around disability justice, about increasing accessibility, about how to offer more meaningful supports to disabled folks, because as I'm sure you know, the health inequities are pretty intense. They're pretty gnarly. So folks with disabilities are, we die sooner. Uh, we have more experiences of depression and isolation and more challenge access, um, preventative healthcare. And often folks with disabilities are more likely to have health insurance and less likely to go see their doctor. And that to me is like so telling about the experience with sort of traditional health models. Most folks have the ability through insurance to be accessing preventative health and contacting their doctor more. And also I think talking to most disabled people, you're gonna hear a pretty isolating, frustrating, dehumanizing experience that you've had with a doctor, not being heard, um, being treated like a child, being dismissed. So it's really cool that with this funding from IHN, but it's really nice to have this funding that's helping us work in community and, and build a space for disabled folks. And also for them to acknowledge like, wow, this is a gap in our service and we want to use the expertise of disabled people to get better. Yeah, so I noticed you talked about health and gaps and you'd also talked about 
sex and kind of like in the beginning and yes. uh, you know, uh, when it comes this is my favorite topic <laughs> with disabilities you can't use the I mean most people if you I don't know it seems like we're always kind of stuck in 1950s mode when it comes to that to the yeah. Oh and yeah. Especially if you have a disability as you know people with uh, who are disabled are not supposed to be sexual beings and uh, you know <laughs> but you can be a sexual deviant. So you're completely non-sexual or so hypersexual it's out of control. Yeah. Yeah, and you know um, sex is as a healthy mental or you know i mean sex is a part of relationships and relationships is part of healthy mental not only healthy mental but also healthy um physical yeah and i'm just kind of curious are are you guys giving educational classes around sex are you guys giving educational classes around relationships i mean you mentioned that before and i'm curious where that yeah. So that's actually inclusive, access, accessible sexual health and wellness education is like my thing. It's so vital. And a social justice, amazing human who I love was talking about like the three things that uh, reduce anxiety and it's plants, pets, and orgasms. And that's universal. That is like the most human thing. Touch serves us and touch soothes us and reduces our anxiety. And it's it's really important part of being a human. And I think an experience that is not empowered in a lot of disabled folks. And then Multnomah Health did this just really illuminating survey of young disabled folks, disabled teens. And so all this information coming in, like you can't have this and you shouldn't have this experience and it's wrong. And also disabled young people are having sex. And largely, they're having sex without contraception and also sort of disproportionately like are at a higher risk of experiencing sexual violence, which sucks. And all these things in my mind go together, right? If you're never given an empowered way to know like pleasure is available to you, pleasure is your birthright, you get to experience pleasure and you can have human connection and you can have joy and and sexual experiences. But I think when that experience of like doing it with dignity and knowing that you also have the right to enjoy those experiences, that those experiences should feel good in your body and in your brain and in your heart. And I think when you're told like these things are just not available for you, it makes it really hard to know what it should feel like and what it can feel like. Well, so, you always, I mean, as a person with disabilities, you always feel isolated because you're not allowed to participate in the norm- normality of of normal or normal society or however you want to term that you know i mean through sex comes relationships through sex comes children you know i mean these are all things normal people get to have but oftentimes when you're a person with a disability you're always isolated from that aspect as because you know i mean people just don't see people with disability doesn't matter if it's sex or i mean it doesn't matter if it's intellectual or physical as being attractive yeah well and i think because of that for me it kind of disrupts this power that we have of like who wants i don't want to have non-disabled sex i want to have the sex that feels good for my body and that's disabled sex and it looks different and it feels different and 
it's awesome and I love it. And also it took me a long time to like not feel isolated in those experiences. Like nothing else really in like how my brain works has been typical. So of course my experience of sex and pleasure isn't going to be typical and that's cool. And I love that. And I think, yeah, there's so much strange sense of like removal of power for disabled folks to say like, this is basically a non-disabled experience. And if you get to interact with it, it will be in this non-disabled way, right? But like like so much of everything we do, it's gonna look different and be beautiful and wonderful. And frankly, I think like way cooler <laughs> than this model that's out there. But we do need to empower people with disabilities to know that these are relationships they can have. So we had our first group of folks come through kind of a modified version of uh, a sexual health and wellness program called Friendship and Dating. And it's a frame that links relationships with sexual health and sexual wellness and also just understanding some of just like the nuts and bolts of anatomy, which sometimes isn't available to disabled folks either. It was awesome. It was really a lovely experience. And in it kind of, we're going to keep offering resources around this again, free. It was offered through Zoom. My thought, and this is where I'm sort of like identifying new resources, is that it was a great framework. And it also really centered the idea that in order to have sex and in order to have romantic relationships, you had to do those things in non-disabled ways. So you start a romantic relationship by making eye contact. And then you have this kind of touch and you say this kind of thing. And it's in a space with a bunch of neurodiverse people who are like, this doesn't feel good to me. I don't enjoy this experience. And that's not the only way this can work. Like you can do things the way that work for your brain and body. And of our facilitation team, we were about half disabled folks and half non-disabled folks. We did it in partnership. And then we're looking at, um, as we got to the section that was looking at anatomies and bodies, they were non-disabled bodies and they were drawings of anatomy that like on the um, body width of vulva and breasts, instead of like the female anatomy, there was pubic hair. Like there's more, there's more happening there and we need to be more concrete, I think, in offering tools of like bodies can look a million different ways. And so let's, my hope as we move into the next phase of teaching this as we start to present different bodies. Um, and then there's also sort of a, a thread that was woven through that really elevated this idea that penetrative penis and vagina sex was like the pinnacle of sex. However, there are way more queer folks in the disability community than there are in the non-disabled community. And also like penetrative penis and vagina sex is one piece of this like beautifully multifaceted puzzle of what sex can be. And there are these wonderful options that are available for folks, and particularly not relying on this like presumption that in order to have traditional penis and vagina sex, the two people having sex, one has a penis, one has a vulva, their bodies sort of fit in this way that non-disabled folks have like elevated as the best way to fit. And it also um, sort of like denies the validity and pleasure of other ways to have sex and ways that I think of as being non-dis or being disabled ways to have sex and are just as powerful and for pregnancy prevention, way better choices. And I think when we ride this this train as we're educating young disabled people about sex that still elevates non-disabled sex as the model, we're really denying true disability pleasure and joy, which is you know doing the things that work for your brain and body and connecting in these authentic and new ways and not 
sort of saying over and over again, there's only one way to be and it's non-disabled. And the reality is if you're a person with disability, you're never gonna be able to do that the right way. You're always gonna be failing and that sucks. And it's not true. And the coolest people I know are disabled people. And I think the best sex people can have is disabled sex. And I think the coolest conversations are disability conversations. And I think we need to, with sex and with wellness and with community, start to look at creating new spaces that we're building with disabled people. And yeah, and it's really cool to do that with sexual health and wellness and do it very much from a frame. And I think this rides through a lot of what the Disability Equity Center does and very much inspired by Adrienne Marie Brown and the wonderful work that she does, which is saying like, we also need to center in pleasure. There are so many experiences that we can and should be having and we should do them. I wanna do them with the knowledge that I get to feel good. Like things can feel good. A person with a disability has every right and should be experiencing pleasure and joy. And that's in eating food that you picked and is prepared in a way you like it. And working with a support team of folks that you respect, who respect you and having sex in a way that feels good for your body and feels connected and has any resource tools you might need to include to make it a more fulfilling experience. Thank you. Thank you, Kate Williams, for coming into the studio and for, um, you know, being with us. And we hope to have you back. And can we also get your contact information? Yes, thank you. This was so much fun. And I would love to continue the conversation. So my best contact is through email. And it's Kate, K-A-T-E, at disabilityequitycenter.org. That's the end of Disability Justice. Since we cannot be fully aware of everybody's difficulties within the community, we would really like it if you would send us your email, disabilityjustice at kboo.org.
Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope.